Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Future Chat from Unwind Media. My name is Rob Attrell, and I'm joined by my co-host, cousin, and good friend, Mike Attrell. We get together every week to bring you all the latest and greatest science and tech news. Our self-proclaimed senior contributor, Nick Maddox, is also here with us, providing a balanced voice and stunning good looks, as usual. Nick, how you doing? Rob, I'm more than just a pretty face. And a gorgeous, Are you, though? And a gorgeous head of hair. <laughs> and a magnificent beard. And broad shoulders. Come on now, Rob, I have a mind. A oh, well, brilliant I, I never, one. <laughs> I never disagreed with that. I said you had a balanced voice. Okay. Mike, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm excited to be upgraded to good friend. And then Nick got downgraded to self-proclaimed senior contributor. So I don't know how I mean, he feels about that. Yeah, that's not, that's not really a downgrade in my opinion. But <laughs> Now introducing the self-proclaimed host and kind of a dick to... <laughs> it's Rob Attrell. <laughs> that's fine with me. Where did I can you... live with that. Is your vo- video feed just gone, Rob? It is gone. I'm working on trying to figure out why. <laughs> Were we supposed to just roll hoping, with that or what? I, I was hoping you would not point that out until I was able to solve it. <laughs> but uh, here we are. I'll figure that out. But we'll, uh, we'll move on for now. Technical difficulties, as of course, is tradition. I, don't, I wouldn't say they're technical difficulties. If anything, this takes the pressure off me because I can just do whatever I want. Rob, I don't have to be looking at the camera. I can. You could take Rob, your are you shirt wearing off. Pants. Yeah, you could take your shirt off. And you'd never I could know. already not be wearing pants. This doesn't. <laughs> this doesn't change anything about that. Oh, I'm not asking in that context. I just want to know. Yeah, uh, I am in fact wearing pants. Mm. Sucker. <laughs> uh. So let's move. Let's move on to the actual meat of the show. And uh, I have some follow up here on last week. I don't think I don't think this needs to take up a lot of time, but I I just want to talk and get your views a little bit on the siloing of content that I brought up last week. Uh, so last week, the, the new sort of news was, well, I mean, I guess it's not that new, but Facebook video is taking off and they're they're now saying they get billions of views a day of these auto playing videos. And this in the last week. Twitter has unveiled a new native video posting functionality that's started to roll out. I haven't I haven't seen it myself on my app, but the ability to post not a Vine video, which Vine is created by Facebook, but specifically Twitter video, which can be. I think they were they were saying eventually it'll get up to about 10 minutes, but I think right now it's 30 second clips. Did you say Vine created by Facebook? By Twitter. OK, you said Facebook. Just wanted to clarify that. Okay, yeah. sorry, yes. Twitter. Um, Mike, where were you when I was saying stupid things the other day? <laughs> That's a much easier stupid thing to, to clarify. Um, is, it, Twitter, is it yeah, Iraq it versus is. Afghanistan and Twitter versus Facebook? It's basically the same. The same level Which of Which is basically the same thing. <laughs> so Twitter also has, in addition to this video, they also have group direct messaging now. In, in direct competition with services like Google Hangouts, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, uh, 
all of these. They've had direct messages for a while, but now they have direct messages in groups. You can have private messaging with up to 15 people, I think it was. Uh, so I just, I, the direct messaging thing is kind of nice because it gives you, it, it's just sort of an extra thing and it's not taking away from anything else. But what I want to talk about with regards to siloing content was with Facebook videos, as, as soon as Facebook sort of wisened up and started taking their video stuff seriously, they started taking links from Vimeo and from YouTube and from Vine, all these other video platforms and making them look much worse so when you post a facebook video to face or upload a video to facebook it'll look beautiful and huge and when you post a youtube link to a youtube video on facebook it looks terrible and like any other video platform will look terrible on it man because Rob, why is it always about size with you god sorry why is it always about size with you well no it's not about it's not about size it's about aesthetic and that's the whole point of video <laughs> Is the aesthetic quality of Thank you, what Mike. you're actually looking at? <laughs> I'm I'm just moving straight past what you're saying right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I caught that. Because this, it, it, it's important to me. There, all of these platforms, and you talked, Nick. <laughs> you you mentioned last week that I can't expect a free service to help me. They'll be helping themselves. Did but I say that? You did say that. And In those words. I, I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but that was the meat of it. Okay. But I, I have to disagree with that sentiment. I don't... Are you still laughing about the size thing? It's not that funny. <laughs> no, I'm laughing about the fact that I still can't see you. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's fine. Uh, what, what do you think, Mike? I think, obviously, both Facebook and Twitter are introducing these services to monetize better and not drive traffic to other websites. Um, So they're encouraging people to upload content to be hosted on their site versus redirecting somewhere else and getting hits and um, revenue towards other services. But I know it's been introduced before by Hello Internet in probably their, was it their second episode when they talked about copyright and uh, how freebooting. What's that? Freebooting. In addition to copyright, well, just just how like they've they found it common among news sites to re-upload YouTube videos to their own video services, so that they would get the traffic and the and not drive traffic towards YouTube. Um. So I don't I don't know if this is going to encourage similar behavior for Facebook users and Twitter users, especially those who get a lot of traffic to their own profiles. And if they're re-uploading YouTube videos that end up going viral, then Twitter is going to benefit from that instead of YouTube. Um, so, so I don't know. I'm sure YouTube's not going to be happy about this new service. Right. So th- there was a video by a, a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day that was posted probably a week or two ago. Uh, talking about this exact problem, how people are stealing his YouTube content. They're downloading it. And uploading it to Facebook and getting millions of views. And it's not just him. It's There are lots, lots of YouTube creators that are having this happen to. And there's very little recourse with Facebook. You can report the video, but that doesn't mean they have to take it down right away. And they already, by the time they take a video down, they'll generally have millions of views. And it'll they will have already made their money off of it. So it doesn't even matter that they are eventually taking it down. Because 
it's too easy to to do. And I, I don't know what the solution is to that, but yeah, so this is the problem that Brady and CGP Grey were referring to in Hello Internet that they called that they deemed freebooting. And it is it's theft, but it's like as long as the internet has been around, people have stolen content off of it. So I think like it's going to take a modern solution to this problem, but I don't know what that solution necessarily yeah. is. To to clarify, they didn't actually refer to it as theft. They made a point to call it infringement, not theft, because CGP didn't like the term theft. Right. Well, yeah, it's effectively theft, even if you don't want to legally call it that. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, it's theft. Exactly. So, basically, as somebody who puts videos on the internet, I don't want to have to upload a video to YouTube and then upload a new video to Facebook, upload a different video to Twitter, upload a video to Vine. Like, I don't want to have to upload a video to all these different places. Could you Could you fit it all in a Vine? <laughs> I don't think you could fit Future Chat in a Vine. <laughs> that would be very impressive. Oh, you know what we should do? We should have a quote of the day or like a clip of the day that gets uploaded to Vine, where it's like kind of like future clips, but vines yeah but very very short yeah. and that's it's interesting yeah. i don't know if it worked this week at least not for anything i'm saying because it may as well just be an audio clip um <laughs> the, but so that the, what i've ended up doing like a lot lots of different sites have solved this problem in different ways but none of them are best for the, the consumer or the person that's watching the content so for instance what i do when i'm uploading a youtube video is i make a blog post with the YouTube video embedded in it. And then I attach a thumbnail to that blog post. And so when I post, a, I then post a link to my blog with a video in it. And what shows up is the thumbnail, which, which gets the full screen treatment because that's how it treats link stories. But it means that I can't post YouTube links to Facebook. Like there's no reason to do that because it looks terrible and there's no real incentive to, to click on that. Cause it, it doesn't even look like a video. It looks like, it, like unless you looked deep into the the text of it to see that it was from YouTube, you wouldn't know what it was. And that's not a good solution for anybody, in my opinion. Do you have any thoughts on this, Nick? Uh, <clears throat> it sounds like a private company doing what's best for the private company rather than considering anyone else. I mean, that's what you said last week, too. I... I'm not shocked. Uh, I'm not saying what they're doing is right, but I don't know. For as long as the internet's been around, you've had a stealing and b dickish behavior. Actually, no. I think dickish behavior on the part of corporations uh, precedes the internet. But yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know. It's also like. In terms of siloing, like everyone trying to have their own separate silo, because I guess that's the analogy we're going with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I find it kind of frustrating because I just don't want to have to deal with that many silos in order to talk to people. Right. You don't have to think about which silo you're using to talk to someone. Yeah. And I mean, um, it was in like... Uh, Back when I first started using Linux, uh, Pigeon was good for that. Yeah, Pigeon was good for that. Because you could just 
take all these different messenger services in and then, uh, you know, assimilate them into one service. And I, I don't know if you can do that with Hangouts. I sure would like to. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think it's coming. I, I feel like with Hangouts, it's coming. And with Windows Phone, apparently, Windows Phone 10 is going to be very good uh, at it, it. Windows Phone is already pretty good at keeping those different services. Um, but apparently, Windows 10 is going to handle it even better. And so I'm kind of excited. I don't know that I'll ever switch to Windows, but I feel like that is a good thing. I feel like there's no downside to it. Um, so do we want to move to the next the next piece of follow-up? I just wanted to... I mentioned last week that Windows 10... Uh, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen with enterprises. And so... It ends up that the the main story is that Windows 10 for the enterprise is not going to be free. You're going to have to, if you're an enterprise user, you're going to have to, uh, I don't know what the cost is actually going to be. They haven't decided that yet, but basically it's not going to be free. You're going to have to, if you have an agreement with Microsoft to upgrade your system to keep it on the latest one, you'll be able to do that. But it's not going to you're not going to get the free upgrade that the consumer version of Windows 10 is going to get. So that's kind of uh, I mean I, I I you kind of expect that because again Microsoft already has agreements with corporations to to provide them with Windows. But it's it's weird that again they're going to sort of bridge they're going to have a difference there. So for some people it's going to be free and for some people it's not going to be free and that could be kind of confusing. Well, that's, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I really don't know what to think about this yet. I think appealing of like appealing to the broad consumer base in general by offering free things makes sense because it broadens a base. And then I guess you're hoping that everyone will participate in the enterprise version because everyone uses it personally, but I, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm kind of disappointed because I was, I mean, I think NSERC as an organization has, I mean, we're definitely on the enterprise version, but I assume we have a standing agreement with them so that I, I know that Windows 8 has been in testing for a while at NSERC, and so hopefully we'll be able to get Windows 10 pretty quickly. But the hope is that, uh, th so they're talking about, I was reading this morning, they're talking about a long-term having a long-term stable version similar to the Linux system where I think it was, there, there'll be a, one that supported uh, one version that supported for six years after the release. And then there'll be six more years of long-term release support after that. So if a company chooses, they can stay on that version and know that they'll have 12 years of stability and updates, at least security updates to it. But the feature set will stay the same. And there's also going to be an enterprise version that will get that will stay sort of a few months behind, so it'll get security fixes right away. But updates will will sort of be pushed to the system administrator for that enterprise, and they'll have the option of whether they want to incorporate updates to the actual platform itself. So they're going to kind of keep security updates separate from platform updates and features, which I, I think is a 
good solution. It'll be interesting to see if that changes how people perceive Windows because I think most people in enterprise tend to perceive that if something works, why change it? Like why, even if it's getting better, just leave it the same so that people don't complain. People don't need training. Um, I don't know. Would you guys, if you're at work, does it matter to you? Do you, do you care if you get the latest version of windows, if you're using the latest software or is it just, if it works and I can do my job, it's fine. Mostly if it works and I can do my job, it's fine. Okay. Uh, like it's, yeah, I mean, like, I don't necessarily need the latest and greatest in features, but it sounds almost like the model for Red Hat Enterprise, where they have the free version Fedora that kind of, you know, is the, uh, what would you call it, the forerunner, I guess. And then they assimilate the things that work really well into the Enterprise version. Right. So it, it sounds kind of like that. I mean, if there's something really important for security or something like that, you want that of it. You want that update available immediately. But right, yeah, yeah. Being being a tech involved person, both work wise and in my personal life, I don't find myself at work wanting a big, you know, fancy gadgety, super feature enhanced version of anything. Because as long as it can run the software that I need to run, then I don't care. Um, but say if it's for my own personal computer or my phone or that kind of thing, then I'm looking forward to the updates and want to get the updates. So I think it makes sense that the enterprise won't be as focused on wanting the updates that Windows puts out because they are often consumer-focused and more visual enhancements, uh, user experience, functionality, but not so much, um, not so many changes on the productivity side of things because those are often office-based, you know, suite updates and uh, individual software updates versus operating system updates. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't imagine the security side of things will require, or they, they, I don't believe they need to have a full operating system update to implement. I think, yeah, like you said, you can, implement them separately and while still maintaining the same operating system. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is that for windows, the easiest thing that they can have is just one version that everybody's on. So they only have to support one version with updates and with security fixes. So I think that's what they're aiming for is to push people to update. I mean, that's obviously why they're doing it on the consumer side, but their goal is to include as many people as possible, even on the enterprise side to get these to get on the latest version plan, to have some agreement where they get updates. Essentially, they get, at least the sysadmin gets the update pushed automatically and they get to decide if and when they'll, they'll go through and test um, their applications to make sure that the actual, the programs the office uses or the, the corporation uses will actually work on their platform, will work what with what they need and then they'll be able to push them with without Microsoft's needing to sort of babysit them with that. They'll be able to hand it to them and say, here, this is done. This is an update. Deploy it when you're ready. Whereas right now, I think the picture is a whole lot more complicated than that. That but, sounds like a good assessment. Yeah. All in all, I'm, I'm a little disappointed because I, I, I don't think it's great, but they were saying that the article that I read, they were saying that most organizations will have an agreement with Microsoft 
So it won't really cost them any more because they already have licensing agreement. It will just be a matter of keeping that agreement. And then they'll I, be on. I apologize, but I need to just completely interject and digress. Can you hear me clearing my throat when I do that? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, not not loud. <laughs> so next week, I am not using Chrome for this. <laughs> it's the long and short. Down with Chrome. Down with Chrome. <sighs> no, it's... Yeah, I'm I'm actually muting the mic from the operating system before I do this. Yeah. And it's working fine for Audacity. But it still goes through. But Chrome is just not picking up on uh, on the message there. Interesting. Yeah, it's fine. We're yeah. going to be pushing the pure audio anyway. Yeah. God, I hope so. <laughs> you seem far too upset for this, Nick. <laughs> I, uh, my apologies. <laughs> Moving on. That's okay. So let's move to the meat of, so to speak, the meat of the episode. <laughs> so it's funny because of what the story is. Yeah, i th- I think this is probably one of the mo- one of the biggest. It will end up being eventually, if we're looking back, one of the biggest news stories of the year. Um. And I may be very wrong on that, but that's sort of the scientific assumption that I've that I've had based on reading it. So scientists were able to the, the headline version of this is that chemists were able to unboil eggs. And what? <laughs> How is that possible? So scientifically, the boiling of an egg is a chemical process that changes the nature of proteins in the egg, which is like, proteins or eggs are mostly protein. Eggs are almost entirely protein, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so basically all you have to do to unboil an egg is reverse that chemical process that cooking does to it. And it's mostly just a structural change. It's not really a molecular change in for at least in most of it. So um, that process, the process where you cook or or change proteins to for consumption is called denaturing and you can do it with heat you can do it with things like chemicals like acid and it it, it was a process that have for a long time had been thought to be irreversible and so the, the chemists have been able to find a way to do this with reasonable success with reasonable speed and so that the overall scientific process right now isn't technically having to do like they're not their goal is not to have cooked eggs turn back into raw eggs that's not the goal it's for protein research and basically even though that would be a just a huge economic area of it would unboiling be so already boiled eggs <laughs> it's like oh no this egg didn't turn out i oh, can just better, try again <laughs> better look for the renaturing protein which doesn't cost a horrendous amount of money compared to the egg. So. <laughs> so the implications of this research are are pretty broad in that what it'll enable them to do is take it to, to sort of re reuse proteins that are in their research because a lot of the testing that they do 
with regards to proteins and the last few years have led to a huge boon in protein creation, like making custom proteins for things. And so the, the testing process gets a lot easier if you can just reuse the same protein even after you've denatured it. So while it may not be economically useful to unboil eggs, it's very economically useful because proteins are extremely expensive to to make, especially when you're making them. It's not really by hand, but it's it's manually. Uh, to turn a used up protein that has been folded out of its productive shape and fold it back into its um, into its useful shape. And it, it's interesting that the way they did this was actually uh, like, again, the headline version isn't very useful saying you can un, you can unboil an egg, but that actually is what they did. They actually did boil an egg and then they were able to take that protein that wasn't useful anymore and reverse the process to make it a useful protein again. So I don't mm-hmm. think that this is it's not u- broadly useful right now, but it makes protein research so much faster and a lot easier. Do you guys have any thoughts in, in reading this story? Do you guys have any thoughts on it? Uh, it's going to be great for protein research. And what is it? It sounds as though uh, proteins are going to be the next big phase for uh medicine because they thought that you know after the genome project was completed completed we would just be able to uh you know design therapies based on personal genomes and genomics or whatever it is but as it turns out most of the information in the genome is for making proteins and stuff like that and it's all how those proteins behave in the body that affects, you know, things further down the line. So I, I don't know, like, are there physical problems that arise from proteins denaturing? Cause it'd be good for that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like the possibilities yeah. are seemingly endless and this appears to be an area of basic research, which is awesome. Agreed. What about you, Mike? Anything to add? I just so I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the research they're doing, but from what I understand about eggs, that the changes are a big part of the result of water leaving the, I guess, the structure of the egg. And then the proteins kind of curl up, and that's the part that you can't uncurl them. Right. Um, but I don't know if it kind of transfers over to any change in a protein that you can reverse. Like, it's probably fairly specific to a type of change in a protein versus just, oh, any protein that's changed, you can now go back. Like, if you grill a steak, you can't ungrill a steak. Right. Yet. That's Yet. the theory. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's oh, definitely. The, oh, the customer sent back his steak because he said it was overdone. Best use the de- or the renaturing <laughs> chemical. Yeah, so, um, but no, it's interesting to see where it's going. And yeah, it's one of the first big news items that seems to be fairly uh, basic research versus 
uh, revenue driven. Yeah. Although this, I'm sure will help the revenue, but it's a fairly expensive project in it. And it, I think it's going to pay off for them in terms of basic research rather than in terms of making them billions of dollars right away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next story we have here, Nick brought to us uh, something called Neverfrost. Neverfrost. It is a project out of Waterloo, Ontario, University of Waterloo. Um, the idea is it was a nanotechnology project for uh, fourth-year engineers, one of whom I worked with at National Research Council. Great guy. Uh, he is not mentioned in the article, and I can't seem to get a hold of him. So I don't know what the story is there, but... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, words are hard. The idea or the principle behind it is they've used some sort of nanotechnology um, and it can be applied to windshields, uh, stuff like that to prevent ice from forming on top of it. So hopefully it'd just slide off rather than you having to scrape your windshield. But, I mean, consumer windshields aren't the main driver of this. It was, curiosi was curiosity-driven, but it was kind of applied research. Because um, plane de-icing is a big deal. And ice on plane wings is a huge problem if they're in flight. So, the idea is that you could just pre-treat things like plane wings or aircraft or whatever... Uh, anything sensitive to ice buildup so that ideally the ice will just not form on it. It'll just kind of slough off instead of actually sticking and requiring a lot of labor energy to remove it. And yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get your guys thoughts, but most of mostly it was, Oh man, I remember going for a walk with this guy and him saying, yeah, it's called never frost. <laughs> Wait to hear about it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. I'm waiting. I'll recognize it if it happens. And then it happened. I was like, oh, oh, my. That's cool. Huh. What do you think, Mike? I don't know. It, it sounded really cool. Um, and it, it looks like they're already trialing it with some, uh, some trucking companies um, on their vehicles to see how it holds up against frost and one of the other th big things that they were developing was the ability to resist uh chipping from from rocks that came up um and obviously that's a big expense for trucks that spend a lot of time on the roads and possibly behind other trucks that kick up a lot of rocks um so if your windshield can resist you know stuff that needs repair then then that's always better so um i guess they were able to have a slingshot that had like a little steel pellet in it and they shot it at the window and it didn't even make a mark. Um, so it's pretty crazy that, that that was possible with just applying a film over top of the glass. So one of the things I was wondering is if it would require a lot of regulatory approval from, you know, automotive companies. Cause uh, I know tinting is a big thing that they're saying, you know, you're not allowed to tint certain windows and that kind of thing. So, cause windshields primary purpose is for safety, not for, um, 
you know, keeping bugs out of your car. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, it'll be interesting to see if they can get it into a mass market and almost even come, you know, as an add-on when you buy your car. Yeah. And that's, that's all from R&D spending. <laughs> I think that's going to be our theme from now on. Look at that. Look at what R&D spending did. <laughs> We're only going to get to the future that of which we speak in future chat through R&D spending. Yep. And, you know, the progression of time details. The, so this film kind of makes me think of the, what was it? A, a year or so ago, they had this the plastic that they were using for squeeze bottles, like ketchup bottles or mayonnaise or whatever. Oh, yeah. That where the, it just had such a, I don't even know what you call it. Like it's an everything phobic surface, yeah. just extremely repellent and everything would rather stick to itself than the surface. So it seems like an extension of that idea. A surface with low adhesion properties. Thank you for for specifically clarifying that. No, I had Um, a quiz on that this week. No, I know. Yeah, the terminology is is important and there is specific terminology for it. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely, yeah. I mean, from Canada, it's obviously, that would save millions I, th- I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it would save millions of man hours a year people scraping their windshields if you just had to get into your car turn it on and like do one windshield wipe to get everything that was on your windshield off of it then that seems great for a second i thought you when you said millions of man hours i thought you meant with like yeah the me squeeze too. bottles <laughs> like, fighting with the how ketchup. many lunches have been unnecessarily extended because people couldn't get the ketchup or mayonnaise out of the bottle Hey, that's even more. I'd say that's tens of millions of man hours a year. Yeah, the whole co- the whole Heinz ketchup bottle thing, how it just never seems to come out. Like, yeah, yeah. imagine the time lost. Imagine yeah. the investment wasted. <laughs> I think, yeah, this is. I mean, people have been applying this sort of as a even. There are coatings that you can actually spray on that will do this. So i I think this is probably the most widely beneficial application of the technology of <clears throat> of low adhesion chemicals and low adhesion films yeah yeah see i'd i even get it for the chip resistant aspect because we've already had to replace our windshield once and now we have another chip that we still haven't replaced so hmm. if if this film costs a couple hundred bucks it's worth saving that for or worth spending that to save one or two windshields down the road yeah mm-hmm. so to speak yeah it's on the order of when they introduced but down the road literally though right because right. yeah. it is roads you're driving down i assume yeah. yeah it's on the order of when they introduced laminated glass covering it mm-hmm. with plastic so it, so it, when it shatters it doesn't yeah. break apart yeah yeah. So, yeah i i you could probably almost even incorporate this film into that coating just have it all in one so that it's not even any thicker or any any less transparent because of it yeah the worst so for me personally the worst part of this is i really want to know how it works but i i remember talking to the guy because we were in the same place at one point after we had worked together and i asked him about it and he was like listen like i i can't talk about it like if i had a a non-disclosure agreement here for you to sign like i would tell you in a heartbeat but i mean 
we're just talking in a bar, so I can't right now. It was like he didn't have a stack of NDAs. It was like really want an NDA right now. <laughs> like, right I would have napkin. I would have ha- I would have signed it so happily. But then you couldn't tell us about it right now. If That's you did true. Know. But I would know, and that would be enough for me. <laughs> I think it's better this way. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, because depending on how it's made, like there could be environmental concerns too. Like yeah. if you have the nanomaterials leaching to the environment, that could be bad. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's really cool. All right, we have a couple of stories here from the FTC this week. They were they were on a roll. Um, first up, they announced that in the states, the, this applies in the states, but again, as we mentioned before, the states tends to lead the way on these kinds of things. And so when the FTC makes a declaration or makes some kind of announcement like this, other countries tend to listen up and follow suit. And so that's that's why I'm most excited about about what they announced. And so the first thing has to do with unlimited phone plans. And basically this is the language that every phone, every phone company that has an unlimited plan has a little caveat that says after a certain amount of data, we will throttle you. Which sounds particularly. Yeah. So they don't, they're not going to charge you more, but they're going to severely reduce your internet speed down to like dial up. And, Basically, FTC came in this week and said, all right, if you're going to use the word unlimited, it has to be actually unlimited with no throttling afterwards. And Well, yeah, because otherwise it just seems like false advertising. Right. And so currently Sprint is the only one that doesn't have uh, – that actually calls unlimited and doesn't have throttling afterwards. AT&T had that, and then they introduced throttling, and then eventually they just stopped with – unlimited plans. So the only people that have unlimited plans on, on other carriers right now are grandfathered in. Uh, but sorry, are these, uh, are these mobile or mobile? Oh, okay. Okay. I, it, it may eventually apply or it may apply to cable and, and, uh, ground internet wired internet at some point. But this, this was particularly about mobile, uh, cellular okay. plans. So I, the, the I, process the, of this. Uh, uh, okay. So I'm cynical. I'll, that's why I'm hesitating to be excited about this. Okay. I'm cynical. And so having experienced several years of watching what government does with regards to technology, with regards to data, all in my opinion, all this is going to do is cause every company to stop offering unlimited plans. Mm. And I like unlimited plans. I think they're a good idea. You but they like have to having be, lots of data? They have to be unthrottled. I so, don't think I've ever heard you talk about wanting lots of data. Uh, I talk about it pretty often. You might not have been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> can I add senior heckler to my to my title here? I mean, you can add it. I don't like that. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> uh, so the other thing that the FTC did this week, which is arguably a lot bigger step towards the future is they've moved <clears throat> they've moved the definition of broadband internet so the basic level of internet to call something to call something high speed from its old standard which was 4 megabits down 
and one megabit upload to That's 20 cool. yeah that was broadband and so they were wow. they were touting all this that, that so much of the because so the story is in order to get government subsidies you have to have you have to be serving a certain amount of of your consumer base of the of the total territory you have and so the companies were getting these subsidies and they were giving everyone this very, very lackluster internet and saying, oh, this is broadband. But in reality, that internet is not going to get you very far at all in the modern era. And so these companies were taking their subsidies and they were leaving people that had very, very slow internet and not increasing it at all. Even though a mo- the modern internet will not really run very effectively at all on that internet speed. So the new definition for the FTC is 25 megabits down and 3 megabits up. And so... <clears throat> My plan barely qualifies. <laughs> Woo! Exactly. So now I think that definition a lot more closely reflects how the internet actually works. Because your internet probably doesn't feel... It might be fast enough for you as a basic internet user. But there are probably times when you're sitting waiting for your internet to do something that it seems it, like it should have done already. It doesn't feel fast. It at the moment it feels passable. Exactly, and so like that's back, what they're trying to do. Back when I was at fifteen megabits per second, it was frustrating a lot. Right. So <clears throat> I'm really excited about this personally. I've just moved to a plan that is that is above this. That is what this new these new broadband definitions are compared to the old version. So it's several times faster upload and download speeds. And I really, uh, I think that the there was a lot of regulatory friction from companies like Comcast and Time Warner, uh, and they didn't like this because they they were complaining that you don't need that much bandwidth to do these things. <clears throat> they were saying that in conversation with the FTC, and then they were turning around and telling their customers, "Oh, get this plan." Uh, this 150 uh, megabit plan because that will allow you to stream HD video without interruption. And then turning around and saying, you don't need to, you only need 25 megabits to, to stream HD video. That's, that's fine. So they were saying completely conflicting things when they're talking to customers and when they're talking to the regulators. And so the, the long and short of it is, I think <clears throat> I said this on Twitter yesterday. I think I'm coming around on my opinion of Tom Wheeler. I, when when the, he was talking about net neutrality and basically trying to change the laws to create a two-tiered internet system where you'd have to pay to get to have people throttle or to have people treat all your traffic the same, uh, which is basically exactly what the big carriers would want. And Tom Wheeler used to be used to be a chairman or a, the CEO of. I think it was Comcast. He used to he used to basically run one of the big internet carriers, but now he's running the FCC. And but so these latest changes have shown me in a lot of ways. Like I have a lot of respect for him now as someone who's impartial and who's doing things for the best for the improvement of the internet as a whole and of of especially people who are maybe more rural and they need to be connected to the internet. The internet is by many, many accounts, 
a necessity in the modern age. And I think this legislation reflects that. Well, I mean, it's gotten to the point where if you want to get a job and be a productive member of society, a lot of them are over the internet now. Yeah. Like they don't even want a physical resume in their hands until they print it out themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it just seems like one of those things where if you want productive members of society, they need to have internet. Like used to be what phones and stuff were like. Um, Yeah. Mike, do you have any thoughts on either of these FTC rulings? I think I think both, like you said, show a big step toward um, kind of regulating and making things equal for consumers and for people that are providing the service. Um, like, you know, the big thing was that broadband wasn't specifically defined as any specific speed. So... You know, Talus calls theirs broadband, Shaw calls theirs broadband, but to a consumer, it's like, oh, they're both the same, but who knows what they're actually considering as broadband. And Mm -hmm. if those same speeds are going to be achievable wherever it is that you are. So there needs to be some sort of uh, transparency in what you're actually going to get. And the same thing with the, the upload, download throttling that, you know, if you get unlimited data at, you know, 15 megabits per second, you expect to still get that speed regardless because it's unlimited. So it shouldn't be unlimited to a point and then we're going to try to convince you to not use as much or or that kind of thing, right? Like then just don't call it unlimited. Call it ultra high use or something, but don't call it yeah, unlimited was, if it's not, right? Yeah. I was going to say it's the difference in naming between like tech savvy's naming after the speed they give you and Roger's yeah. super happy, awesome plan or lightning fast leopard internet or yeah yeah their terminology is ridiculous so in the the slightly less fast but nice uh sunshine happy unicorn plan yeah yeah or rainbow unicorn i believe it is yeah (laughs) it's the kind of thing where like if you're not willing to allow people to take advantage of your unlimited service at that speed then don't offer it like I don't know. Like it's unless you're explicit about certain terms of the the agreement, like unlimited up to however much use, and then afterwards you're down to whatever. But don't yeah. don't be shady about it and have people mm-hmm. have to call you and say why are my speed so slow. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add, Nick? Are you good? Um. I share your concerns to a point. I hope this doesn't just end up being lip service and yeah. leading to unintended consequences. And yeah, it's kind of a loophole. Future Future's looking good. Yeah, agreed. And uh, so the, the last thing I'll say on this is the U.S. was coming up in rankings of internet speed based on the broadband definition uh, which is very old compared to other like there are Asian countries particularly tend to be tend to have very fat, very fast connections to the internet compared to everybody else. And so what has happened now is the number of Americans who have broadband internet has dropped pretty dramatically because a lot of people had terrible internet, but 
it was still called broadband, even though it was terrible, it, even though it wasn't in the in 2015 language, it was not broadband. It, they just called it that <clears throat> as a holdover from when they made the definitions 10 or so years ago. So it they're kind of being brought back to reality in whereas before they thought, oh, man, like 90, 90 some percent of our population has access to broadband Internet. And now it's more like 70 or 80 percent, which is a lot further behind than other countries with the same uh, with the same sort of economy and um, stature in the world have places like South Korea and Japan have extremely, extremely fast internet. And so when they say we have uh, this massive broadband coverage, uh, it, it's actually true because their definition of broadband is really fast. Uh, th- that might not be a fair comparison because those countries are pretty compact and densely populated, but uh, that's consequence you can't say these these companies are trying to say oh yeah we're we're everywhere and we're really fast everywhere but if they're not then they shouldn't be saying that so the next story we have here this one caught my eye because we've talked a lot about self-driving cars we've talked about electric cars and the future of driving and so they did a study and found a surprising number of cars have been shown to be death proof so far that that is there are no fatalities from vehicular accidents in several models of cars that have been on the roads for a while now like these are not they're not brand new and it's been like six months and they haven't had a fatality there there are models of car that have never been in a fatal crash and a lot of these have to do with uh, a lot of these i think they said six out of the nine were suvs because suvs used to be these Basically, they called them death traps. There was even a Simpsons episode about how they could roll over really, really easily. And like that, that ended up, I think, saving the day. They, they rolled yeah. the, the SUV to, to end up saving people. But there are all kinds of protections that have been put in place since SUVs started becoming popular and, and were rolling over a lot. And now they don't. They, they're electronic and physical protections against it. And so there, there was a story on Reddit the other day I was reading saying, I wonder if in the near future, sometime in the relatively near future, we'd have a point where a car crash would make the news, like a fatal car crash would make the news like a fatal plane crash does. And I was just like, that's ridiculous. That'll take hundreds, if not more years. But now I'm starting to think all it would take is getting older cars off the road and having like cars made in the last three or four years come out with all these safety precautions to actually do this. Like if there are cars that have lane assist and there are cars that have blind spot cameras and all of this advanced technologies, things to prevent rollovers, it's very possible that in the near future, car accident and car fatalities can just drop precipitously if there are these protections. Um, I'm looking through the list here and I'm noticing a distinct trend in which they're mostly uh, SUVs or crossovers. Yeah. And obviously my concern there is there's just, except maybe with the Audi A4, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but a lot of them, they're just, the vehicle's bigger. So it's much, it's much safer in that a bigger vehicle with more material can uh, absorb far more impact before it actually harms the passengers. Uh, so I I don't know. I'm this is great news obviously, especially or 
for the people that drive these SUVs, crossovers, vans, a couple of them maybe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's – I'm also just briefly going to comment on the Mercedes-Benz GL class, the four-wheel drive. Sure. That is <clears> – I might be misremembering, but that is not a pretty car. Like, <laughs> I, Okay. Yeah, it's – it's maybe if the a GL car looks a little your nicer, life. but the the actual G class you sh- you should look it up. It it's very reminiscent of the Canyon Arrow. <laughs> like, okay, if you enjoy right angles, that is absolutely the car for you. <laughs> yeah. So, so I suppose that's my two cents. If you can have an ugly car that basically protects you from death in normal conditions is that not worth or do you just want them to round off the corners of the car well uh, there's also you know fuel efficiency is nice yeah and boxes aren't particularly aerodynamic that's true yeah i think there's probably it's probably an important trend here that all almost all these cars are four-wheel drive I feel like that probably plays into it <clears throat> quite a oh, bit. Okay. It's important in not crashing. Yeah, okay. I'm looking it up now. The GL class looks much better than the old G class did. So you would buy? Um, Especially if it meant you wouldn't die. I still don't know. Based on just the total operating cost that's going to come along with a vehicle that huge. <laughs> that's true, but gas is getting cheaper. and it'll stay that way forever yay that is an expensive car though (laughs) that's a nice looking car yeah okay that is a nice looking car now if you go to the uh bar up top the g-class oh and click on the (laughs) g-class yeah Oh geez! Yeah, that is a bear. Just... All right, we'll put a we'll put a link to this to this car. But that yeah, that's this not this great. unfortunate looking car. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks like yeah, a Hummer. It looks like a Model T. <laughs> it's not that far off, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not great. You want to? I I think they're really good looking cars. Are the C class or the potentially the SLS? Just because, oh my, but, uh, but yeah, the G-Class is not a beautiful vehicle. I imagine <laughs> it is very functional, but it is not pretty. Yeah. As, as far as the, uh, as far as the, the statistics go, I'm, I'm usually very skeptical about statistical analyses like these where you have no background on their methodology or what the whole big picture statistics look like as far as attributing trends to anything specific. Um, Like, you know, even in our own lines of work, as far as research and analysis, like you can kind of make anything fit any sort of trend if you kind of ignore other aspects. Um. So I'd I take this news with a grain of salt as far as the conclusions they reach, um, but if if this is in fact a result of safer vehicles, 
then then that's good is a good trend to have i guess yeah um what one of the things that makes me less skeptical about this is that it wasn't done by the car companies it was done by the yeah. insurance institute for highway safety which is responsible like they're it trying is to a third determine party yeah the, no it's, trying to it's, de- it's not about bias it's just more it's more like do they actually know what they're talking about when they're actually looking at statistics and attributing trends to certain things? I don't know. I think the IIHS is pretty like, that's the authority on the matter as far as I know. Yeah. I I think if, if anyone is going to have a vested interest in getting that right, it would be insurance companies because <laughs> they're the ones who have to pay yeah. out if cars get in accidents. Mm-hmm. So these are the recommendations they're going to make to people about which cars to buy if right. they want. So they to don't have to pay crashes. out as much, but you still have to pay for insurance. <clears throat> so this is actually hey, the result they want. But be cynical about that. But they want safe cars, which is also what the people want. <laughs> it's not about being cynical; it's about being skeptical. I, I'd want to see the stats for myself. Like they but give numbers, they give the average. They don't give total, like absolute numbers because. They're giving, oh, there's zero, zero per million miles, but who knows the actual number? Per, they may, they may mi- only have million like registered vehicle years, a hundred thousand. Yeah. Vehicle years or vehicle miles or whatever they're, they're using. Is it years or miles? Years. Oh, see, that's even worse. It could be, it <laughs> could be sure registered for like 10 years, but never hit the road. <clears throat> I'm not sure that's a good way to, uh, to look at it. That, do you know what I mean? I know yeah, what you I, mean. I, I I agree. It should be registered vehicle uh, distance rather than years. But I think that would be far more difficult to keep track of. But that's what impossible. I mean. But though, don't draw these conclusions based on that stat. There's more behind that stat than just oh, that's safer. What conclusions did they draw? That vehicles are getting safer and therefore reducing the number of fatalities based on these stats. But using the same stats, using the same methodology, they came to the conclusion that car, these cars are safer than other cars from past years. Like, it's not like these, these cars are being driven less than cars were being driven before. It could be just that people are driving less. But they're not. They're but definitely not. We don't not. know that. Based ah. on these stats, that's, that, that's an equally valid conclusion. You're being cynical and I don't... <laughs> I'm being I scientific. Think, you're not. <laughs> you're being the opposite of them. If they're not being scientific, you're not being scientific either. No, I'm just saying there's other conclusions you can draw. You can't just jump to these. I don't think they drew any conclusions. They just said, this is the re- this is the numbers. Okay. These are the data. Yeah. Is, I imagine how they presented it. There's just too many variables and too many things to look at. To... So let's just throw out this study. I'm not saying throw it out. I'm saying look deeper into it before. I'm sure they are. Throwing up the victory flag. <laughs> also, uh, this may not be the fault of the IIHS. This may be the fault of Yahoo News. Oh, for sure. No, I, I totally agree. That's why I'd want to to see i'm i'm not doubting their methodology i'm saying based on what's been presented to us in this article you can't i i'm not willing to take it at face value that's fair i I don't think go ahead rob 
it's not bad. There were no deaths. Like, unless this is outright lying, there were no deaths from these vehicles. Per per million registered years. There were no deaths. <laughs> you can't. How do you refine that down to a percentage? There weren't any. It's not that there, the, the number of deaths compared to the number of miles was a statistical blip. It's that there were zero. Right. In the two years. That doesn't, it doesn't say how many miles were even driven in those vehicles. But they looked at all cars. I know, but you can't you can't calculate on a per like annum basis because if a car sits in a garage, it's not going to get into an accident. So, but it's still but registered what, for that time. What you're implying is that those models of cars that didn't crash just weren't driven, and that's why they didn't that, crash. That's a very likely possibility that they weren't driven enough to actually get into an accident. <sighs> I I'm going to disagree with you here, but I don't think there's any point in. Talking about if they had a column of the total miles of driven us. per vehicle, and then they compared those, then, oh, this one was driven like 1% <clears> of the amount of this other vehicle. That's why there's less deaths. All right. Mike, you have a story here. <laughs> I'm going to go and look up the actual study. Let us know. Uh, talk to us about uh, this this problem with the Waze app that police if, have. Yeah. Before before we get too far off topic there. I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> I, I realize you wanted to move on, but I just have one more thing to say here. I have difficulty, or I'm, I'm not usually a car guy, but God, Mercedes-Benz just makes some beautiful vehicles. There, <laughs> ever since I brought that, that up, I've just been ogling the different cars they have. <laughs> <laughs> it's just oh I remember when I worked at Border Services the lab um they were right next to a Mercedes dealership that you had to walk through if you wanted to get to like Tim Hortons or the nearest Tim Hortons anyway oh just yeah so full of uh what would you call it car lust car envy I'm not envious I'm just uh, you call it? Yes. I don't think I could ever own a nice car. I'd be, I'd get way too paranoid about this, like smallest scratch or bump. Like that's yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I don't know if I would ever follow through and purchase one just because, for just basically fuel efficiency reasons. Like I don't know if I could to myself justify having a vehicle that takes that much fuel to run it. Yeah. But God, they're beautiful. All right. What's uh, your story here, Mike? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is another driving related story. Um, it's to do with the Waze uh, service that's offered by Google. Um, or they own the wait service now, and I guess supported by Google. Um, now, this was a popular app down in the Middle East, I want to say, before it got popular by the purchase from Google. Um, but it's essentially a uh, crowdsourced traffic monitoring service uh, where users will uh, input in traffic problems such as speed traps or traffic jams or accidents or that kind of thing. Um and on the note of being uh, a key to identifying speed traps, there's a, uh, I believe, a Chicago 
a Chicago police sor- uh, service that they uh, they're worried that people might use the service to actually locate police officers and hunt them down and kill them. Um, and this is in light of the recent uh, aggression and attitudes towards police service um, after Ferguson and other instances of police aggression. Um, now, the response from Google and Waze specifically has obviously been, well, our service is meant as a, uh, a crowdsourced way to avoid bad traffic and, you know, potentially, you know, highlight speed traps where people might want to slow down. Um, you know, these police officers are in the public already and they're not like hiding or staking anything out. They're just out there with their radar gun. So for them to be located on this app isn't any more out there than they already are. So I don't know what you guys think about this, but I, to me, it just seems a lot like technophobia and just unnecessary panic. Yeah. Um, in my hometown, there was a popular speed trap that they'd set up at a pharmacy, um, especially on school days because, you know, uh, speed limits decrease around school days oftentimes in Ontario. But uh, if you listen to the radio in the morning, people would get pulled over by the speed trap and they would call into the radio and say, oh, hey, I got caught here. You guys might want to keep you know, keep that in mind if you're driving in this area. Mm. And so I I don't see the difference between knowing where a cop is on the radio and knowing where a cop is from an app. Like that's, yeah, I think it's just a lot of, well, this new thing is weird and scary and I, I, I don't really know about this. Rob. Rob? Yes. Did you get caught looking at Mercedes Benz too? No, I'm that's looking what at I this, did earlier. I'm looking at the IHS study. Do they have uh, a study, like an actual link to the study? Uh they don't, but I looked up the IIHS and the, I found the status report. Your oh, your Google I'll, foo is strong. Then I'll read it. And you should post the link so that other people can too. Well, no, I I intend to post the link. So they for a vehicle to even be considered in this first of all it there needed to be a hundred thousand registered vehicle years the cars some of the cars that were on this are popular cars that people do drive so i would find it extremely hard to believe that like if it were that way if 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 it were cars that weren't being driven the thing you would see would be like one fluke. Rob, you were so adamant about getting off this topic and we're right back there. No, I said I wanted to move on so that I could go and look at the actual study. Oh, is that why? It was just completely self-serving, was it? We can do this as a follow-up next week. Yeah, let's let's do this next week. Let's all have a look at the data. Okay. And uh, then we'll we'll chat. So all I'm going to say is there's a minimum threshold of the number of registered years which is their best measurement of how much a car has their available measurement not their best measurement they can't get miles right they can't do that so don't come up with a statistic Uh, okay rob what are your thoughts on this uh ways app kerfuffle 
I agree with you that it's technophobia. I people are going to do that when no matter what. It doesn't this doesn't help as much as anyone are saying it does. Mm. I I don't think there's really a story here by that logic, by the logic that they're using, you could say that people could be like I'm thinking like 20 years ago or 30 years ago you'd be saying this like people flashing their headlights at oncoming cars to warn them there's a police trap down the road would mean that they all go and gather first and like oh let's go get that cop he's giving up speeding tickets like that doesn't happen before it's not happening now just because of this app if it was going to happen it would happen regardless of the app and i don't think it's happening yeah oh man you're right i I completely forgot about the the uh the flashy thing the the high beam flash too Yeah. yeah that's that's huge especially in rural areas yeah Having driven a lot at all hours of the day for shift work. Yeah. I can attest to that. Yes. Yeah. As far as geolocating goes, I think this this is an interesting uh, point of discussion as far as the future of geolocation services and uh, crowdsourced data and that kind of thing. And kind of privacy, the privacy aspect, I guess, that people are, are concerned about. Um, I guess police officers being the public public service and uh, high profile positions. Uh, do you think it's just kind of within the job description to have that type of attitude against them where there's just that fear of being targeted that they just kind of have to deal with? I think they know that. I think you get into a job as a police officer knowing that there are risks involved with it. I don't think this risk is worse than any other risk that they face. Yeah. Yeah, until someone comes out and says, oh, yeah, that Waze app is really good for hunting down cops. Yeah. I, I don't see that being something to pursue. Yeah, agreed. So you next up, you have a story here about, or a couple stories, I guess, about drones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, they're becoming a lot more common uh, around households now that they came out with quadrocopters that you can just buy at, you know, a hobby store um, order online and uh have you guys ever actually seen one or have you guys probably seen footage taken from them? i've seen footage yeah. yeah so yeah they they look really cool and it'd be fun to kind of fly one around and stuff but i guess they've been causing issues as far as uh you know flying over people's backyards and taking video or flying around high rises or or even into airspace um and uh yeah it's just becoming I'm- a oh sorry go ahead uh, sorry, I've also heard of them, you know, hanging out in front of people's windows before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like there's obviously concerning. added concerns with, with privacy and safety. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so there's a recent story this week on, on a quadrocopter actually landing in the White House, like or on the White House lawn on that was in lawn, like yeah. a restricted area. Um, and then, you know, I just came across a video of one that was rigged up with like Roman candle fireworks on the drone. Mm-hmm. That they were lit, and then the drone was flown around, and as the f- Roman candles fired, they could direct them toward this guy that had a helmet on. Like it was all kind of yeah, set was, up as a demonstration, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it kind of showed that you can kind of start moving towards even like an you know targeted like ammunition system if you really wanted to, right. um, with like a remote firing button from your control and that kind of thing. So. Like a a predator drone, just yeah. with much less firepower and speed and capability. Yeah, but 
same same idea of yeah, being used yeah. for aggression. So, um, is this kind of along the same lines of the warnings of AI getting out of hand and starting to become more dangerous than we're realizing or wanting them to? Um, because these drones were obviously developed just kind of as a fun thing to take videos with, and well, well. <laughs> The consumer editions were. Yes. <laughs> there's there's different purposes. been doing a lot of work with drones. <laughs> yeah, there's different purposes with the more yeah. high-end military drones. But um, is this kind of like, oh, our bad guys, no one's allowed drones anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, could you just, like, have a jamming system available? Like, jamming I assume... cameras or jamming just the remote control of it? Uh tomato tomato really like because if you can shut down its ability to fly presumably you can i mean it it all works off radio right yeah so if you just jammed at all the or sent high intensity noise out at radio frequencies that uh remote controls tend to use i assume you could just like yeah. pick them off if they get too close eh yeah. I mean, for a place like the White House, I think that would work. I don't know if it's feasible to do it outside the building, like your apartment building. Yeah. True. Although I feel like that could be a fun project. Just not necessarily out of any fear yeah. or anything. Just I wonder if you could actually make something like that. And I'm also curious as to the legality of it because yeah. I know there have been... Like, there are concerns about cell phones and classrooms and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I was, like, my, as soon as I learned about Faraday cages, I was like, well, why don't you just build a Faraday cage for the room? And they're like, yeah, no, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on purpose anyway, because, I mean, I think reinforced concrete, the steel reinforcement actually makes a Faraday cage for large wavelength waves, but... I'm digressing. What do you guys think of what I just said? I I think that there's a lot of fear with regards to mostly unmanned vehicles. I don't think there's nearly as much fear about things like quadrocopters that kids or, or adults alike are playing with. The biggest concern that I heard from this drone that crashed on the White House lawn was that it was at 3 a.m. Hmm. And it turned out that it was a government employee that was doing it. And so it's just like, shouldn't this guy know better? Like, why is he, first of all, why is he trying to fly it onto the white house property? And then why is it a 3am? Yeah. He was apparently how much drunk. drinking was involved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there was some, but just how much. <laughs> and he probably had like his non-government buddies being like, I dare you to th- fly this drone into the lawn. It's yeah. like, Hey, Obama. <laughs> What do you think of drones yeah. now that they're on your house? Yeah. Uh, there's an important distinction no, between drones. No, you know drones. how the Iraqis feel. Oh, no. <laughs> That's so horrible. There's an important distinction between quadrocopters like this one and a unmanned or like a drone that looks more like a plane with that glides around. And I, I think the quadrocopter is a lot less dangerous and a lot less scary mm-hmm. but obviously this is something that's going to be evolving i'm sure 
I'm sure there have been concerns about when like helicopter technology, for instance, was developed that people would be using it for all kinds of nefarious things. And so the miniaturization of that, I think it's just going to take some getting used to. And there, there are going to be issues of people misusing a technology, but I don't think that means development on it should stop. I don't think there's no reason to use it. It's just a matter of controlling this the circumstances. Is is similar to when people buy their own or build their own kind of like propeller planes and they'll like have them on a farm and fly them around. But you for those, you need a license. And I believe you need it registered. I don't know on that part. But yeah. I know you definitely need a license to be allowed to fly, you know, light wing aircraft type stuff. Um, you know, like single person, two person aircraft or whatever. Uh but I think if you can enforce some sort of accountability on the use of them, so say the quadrocopter flew into the White House and it had some sort of serial number on it or registered type identification, then there's that aspect of, okay, well, if you misuse this and you're going to get penalized and it's not just like, and then it will send out a signal that it's in the air or whatever. Like there's got to be some sort of, monitoring or regulation with with the use of them if it's going to get to that point yeah it's absolutely yeah it's a good point all right uh the next story we have here this this it came up yesterday i had a friend bring this up to me and then i saw a story about it apparently in our modern culture if people hear something that a scientist studied and has proof for, like they have experimental evidence showing something. A The average person is more likely to trust a celebrity or someone in entertainment that, they, that they've seen before and heard before. They're more likely to trust the opinion of that person, someone, a Jenny McCarthy type, than they are a, an actual scientist who did research on something. And so the, the study, I guess, that they were looking at was comparing the public opinion on certain issues, things like climate change, things like GMOs. And they found that the when there was an overwhelming scientific majority of opinion that found something was true, that, uh, but there was sort of skepticism in popular culture that the average person erred on the side of thinking that popular culture was right and that these things that have been scientifically proven are just wrong or that aren't, like things like climate change aren't, real so i just i I wanted to get your guys thought on that because i i definitely felt that at certain points but i'd never had it crystallized with research before uh that sounds like people all right i don't like it though (laughs) no no (laughs) as both a scientist and a fan of evidence-based practices i don't like it either but that's people for you I feel like in a lot of cases, uh, if people are given proper information, they tend to make good choices. It's just a matter of getting that information to them. Yeah. Yeah. Like scientists are the informed ones. So they they have an informed opinion. People tend to not be informed, at least on an average. You'll have informed people amongst the noise. But when you come up with these numbers, you're going to have a lot more uninformed than informed Um like even for myself, there's a lot of things that I'll hear about, you know, in just pop culture regarding 
I don't know, say like GMOs, right? Like I'm not a nutritionist. I don't know a whole lot about different things in food, but I knew there's more behind it than, oh, GMOs are bad, right? So, and we covered that in, in a previous episode, obviously. So mm-hmm. it's that kind of process that people ideally would do when they hear something in the media. But on average, people aren't going to. So you're relying on the stuff that's kind of the loudest voice versus the correct voice. And unfortunately, scientists don't have the loudest voice when it comes to reaching the masses. Also, have you noticed that there are a lot of politicians and public figures out there that preface skepticism (laughs) with, now I'm no scientist. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. so, So why are you talking then? Like, yeah. I don't know, unless you're about to poke a legitimate hole in the argument after having reviewed the available literature, I don't know why you're talking. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, it also has to do with the fact that people are used to getting news from an organization like Fox News. And at least it's for a certain demographic. But so people have more of a familiar familiarity and are more likely to trust Fox News than they are, say, the journal Nature, because they're not used to getting news from that source. So Man, could 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 words could a layman necessarily pick up an issue? Like, do they even have issues anymore? <laughs> but like, could you just pick up a journal article and read it without training and how to read those? No, not necessarily, but there are publications that will help make help clarify those kinds of stories for the layperson as opposed That's, to Yeah, okay. Uh, there there have been jokes made for years that Fox News you you can write the Fox News narrative for the year before any news happens. And so <laughs> everything they're trying to every every new thing that comes up is framed in that pre-existing narrative. It doesn't matter what's happened it doesn't matter what is being reported on it's going to support the narrative that they already are talking about and that's what ends up i think getting you to the point that you you don't believe scientists because whenever you hear a scientific story they're framing it to discredit them like when it comes to climate science if p if if fox news was reporting climate science news in a balanced way I think most people would say that it is a problem, but they're framing it in it's already not a problem. Some scientists are saying it is a problem, but we already know that it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the solution to that is, but it's obviously a big problem because it's it's affecting things on Earth in a profound way already. I I think the solution comes from basically people like Dr. Joe Schwartz who operates the Office for Science and Society and actually makes an effort to get good science and good information out and available to the public. Or like Bill Nye does similar things. It's it's just he doesn't have a dedicated outlet right now for it. He just basically freelances at it. Yeah. And I mean, to a lesser extent, organizations like uh, Unwind Media that might have scientific mm-hmm. themed shows where they might try and make scientific stories accessible for the public. Yeah. With wit They're... and humor. 
<laughs> it's mostly the humor. And there, that's what keeps people coming back. <laughs> There's a story come for, here. Come for the hilarity. Stay for the science. <laughs> There's a story here in the Ottawa Citizen uh, about students at the University of Ottawa that have said to their biology professor that they will memorize material about evolution for exams, but that they don't actually believe that it's real. They're memorizing it because they have to, but they don't actually think that it's reality. And so when you see, when you hear a study, when these people hear a study about climate change and how it's affecting things, people don't actually listen to the results of the survey. They think, okay, well, that's a guy who does science. Um, and so if they're studying student, it's like, great, I have to learn that but they're not making the connection that they're learning something that has been studied for years or decades or centuries and has been shown to be true. I think that's kind of terrifying because like when I learned something in school, at a certain point you realize that things that you learned in years past were dumbed down, but it doesn't mean they were wrong. You just had to sort of refocus with new material. You learned what the actual Truth is, it's not that what they're oh, saying man. is wrong. It's that it's oversimplified. I am having that issue right now in my classes. Like, the chemistry and physics that I have learned are at a, not a super high level, but at a university level. And I've gone back to college where, or I've gone, like, into a college course in which that level of detail is not necessary or even helpful. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they've dumbed it down a few levels. And, man, some of it's just, they're like, yeah, so this is how this works. And I'm like, okay. So I I am having to go through those hurdles of I'm going to try and remember exactly what you're saying for the purposes of the test. But, God, that's nowhere near the truth. That's almost the opposite problem. Yeah. Is it that they're wrong or is it that it's just simplified? Uh, some of them are blatantly wrong. Like, I'll accept that we talk about atomic orbits as opposed to orbitals because orbitals are not a degree of precision to which we need to be in our applications. But there are... There are some other things like I'm I'm trying to think of specific examples, but like I've actually gotten questions wrong because I'm like, oh, well, technically, I mean, this is also true. Circle that answer. And they're like, no, we just wanted you to say what you saw in the slides. Like, <laughs> but it, uh, uh, that's awful. I don't like that at all. <laughs> well, like there's. I mean, one thing was, you know, the reactivity of a metal is is primarily determined. What they wanted you to say was it was primarily determined by the number of electrons required to fill its outermost shell. Interesting. And I, and when you're talking about metals, it's just not really true, yeah. especially in the transition metals, like because they're not trying to fill that outer P block; they're just concerned with the D. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm trying to think like even some of that's even just it has more to do with the size of the atom 
as to how it bonds exactly because isn't it the bigger atoms tend to be tetrahedral and the smaller tend to be octahedral something like that yeah yeah so it's like it yeah I, i've been having been having some issues but I'm sorry, on, Professor on a very Fogg, i don't remember <laughs> on a very basic level is the answer they were looking for true like without getting into what you're talking about like i'm just strictly strictly by using those words no it wasn't true yeah but and i mean that's not they're not doing it maliciously right like just i happen to know the most about chemistry and a lot of material or not necessarily materials in like the broad sense but on the microscopic level i know more about it than most of the people in the room yeah and i mean that's just it's they're not trying to be difficult. It's just I'm experiencing difficulties for that reason. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But yeah, although if you're that is a different situation too. Well, I mean, you're presenting this evidence to me, but it's not true. So yeah, I I feel like it, this is one of the things that. Um, Nick and I spoke about on East Meets West, the NSERC 2020 strategy has a focus on science culture in Canada Ooh. and trying to better it with, there's a program called Promo Science that does that. There are, there are several programs. There's another one called Let's Talk Science. And I think getting people to to see scientists in popular culture is a, is a big step towards helping with science literacy in general. So people like Chris Hadfield are just fantastic in the the videos that he did when he was on the International Space Station showing different scientific principles and how how space is different in some very basic ways. I think it really helps having guys like Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson out there talking about science. Not everyone will necessarily care about what they're saying or follow them, but they're getting the message out as as effectively as I think they can at this point with the methods that we have for distributing uh, yeah. media. I feel that, like, I, I agree that that would be good, but I feel that we are at a point now where as soon as someone says, I'm a doctor, then everyone takes them as legitimate and takes their words as truth. And yeah, case in point, Dr. Oz is a Dr. Quack, Phil. And uh, Dr. Phil um well in fairness dr <laughs> phil has a doctorate in economics <laughs> that's helpful he's actually received cease and desist orders yeah. from, cease and desist orders from the state of texas being like listen if you're representing yourself as a science or a, a psychological or, yeah. professional you have to stop call, calling yourself dr phil yeah so it's, it's that type of like it's good to get yeah actual doctors to educate the public, but then everyone's like, "Hey, I'm a doctor too," and then they'll start saying whatever they want. So I I fear that that would go the same way, where it's like I'm a scientist, and then anyone who decides to call themselves a scientist will have that megaphone to access the public and say whatever they want, whether it's true or not. Well, I suppose there's a difference between broad consensus on a matter and one guy. Mm-hmm. Because scientists, doctors, everyone, everyone human is still subject to human errors. Mm-hmm. 
and they have they will have the same confirmation biases mm. and stuff like that. It's just broad consensus tends to be very convincing, especially in the current scientific climate. Yeah. You know what I would love? A panel talk show about scientists by scientists. Like about science by scientists. You'd have a host who has an actual PhD and you'd have guests that talk about issues, but they're actual also PhDs in that field. I think that'd be awesome. I think they have that kind of thing where it's like a cooking show and they're all cooks and they all beat and talk about cooking stuff and cook stuff. That's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Or the view. (laughs) It's like the scientist version of the view. Yeah. (laughs) Four very different scientists with four very different backgrounds. And Whoopi Goldberg for some reason. <laughs> and they're all like tossing their hair around in the intro. They're like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining the number of bald scientists. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we, we'll leave it there for now, uh, but we'll probably come back to this science literacy thing in the future. Uh, so, Nick, you have a story here about H7N9, a new strain Also of known flu. as avian flu. Yeah. It's, uh, it's in North America. It's in Canada. It's in British Columbia. Should we worry? Uh, Mike, I think you and I are fine because of the Rockies somehow. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, the... the- EM wavelengths get stopped. It's the same yeah. kind of All right. idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if, I mean, if we really need to, we just you and I. Uh, like honestly, how many how many roadways do we have to blow out to just cease traffic through the Rockies? <laughs> I think it's like one but, or two tunnels. I was gonna say, yeah. is it like it's like three or four tops? Like, yeah. I mean, we could. I was gonna say we could do that in an afternoon. It would take far more driving than that, but the actual application of explosives yeah. man hours would be trivial by comparison agreed i don't think this so. is a great solution i gotta say uh planes still exist <laughs> i think that's how it got here in the first place i actually forgot about planes. <laughs> i mean they can't get over the rockies to be fair like they don't cruise at anywhere near mountaintop yeah <laughs> no this is impossible how could you even um that does throw a wrench in the plan it does a little bit so mike do you have like a cottage in the mountains or something that we could flee to i have no cottages oh man if everyone if we all like pitched pitched in and got a room at the chateau bant for whatever it is what's the one at lake louise fairmont isn't it yes what is it called isn't it just called Chateau Lake Louise? Maybe. Let's remember. just go to Lake Louise or Jasper. Yeah. Okay. I think that'd be nice. That's no, fair. Uh, no bird flew there. So for people but anyway, who are the, in the important thing is it's, it's, Anyway, sorry. The important thing is that it has actually made the jump to humans, one. And two, it's actually reached North America. Luckily, in Canada, as... As many problems as we might have with our healthcare system, it's pretty good at handling outbreaks currently anyway. So it is under control, uh, apparently. 
happened yeah, to someone. Yeah, it's, it's one case. So far. Yeah, someone went to China, got sick, came back. And there's the issue, but uh, okay, okay so far, but I don't know. It sounds like hopefully there's not too many instances of this happening, but it could be like this is the first case of what could happen many times. Right. I always find it interesting, like we we, we love having our international travel and our plane travel and being able to go to any country whenever we want but this is just kind of the downside that goes along with it is that when something when a when a flu virus gets transmitted from uh, either from human to human and spreads like an epidemic or it jumps from something like a bird or or a pig you get a flu that a lot of people could potentially be exposed to Mm -hmm. if people don't have any antibodies or any antivirals for bird flu, then it's pretty, and it's, and it's being a contagious virus, then you're going to have, you can have an outbreak. There's a chance of that happening. And so when you have people on specifically traveling to other countries on planes, there's a lot of opportunity for these viruses to spread. And this is just another example of, of that phenomenon. Yeah. It's also, it's interesting strictly in the fact that it's evolution in action. So the that virus has evolved the ability to jump species, which is interesting in an academic sense. Yeah. But Nick, I can I can buy into virus microevolution. But but what about what about virus macroevolution? That's not a thing, right? Well, if you've got a lot of microevolution going on large enough to coalesce to the macro scale, Mike, shouldn't that shouldn't that be the same thing? I I, I gotta say I'm doubtful. I'll, I'll you? take your word for it for this episode for the purposes of this. I'll, I'll, oh, no. I hear what you're saying, but are you I don't, skeptical, Mike? I don't believe it. I don't believe it, but I'll I'll, I'll hear you. Oh, are no. you a scientist, Mike? <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you'd jump in. Now I I'm not no a scientist. So now I'm not a virologist, but <laughs> now I'm no epidemiologist. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about that phrase is that they're using it as though it is a like it has a power. Like it adds something to their opinion. Yeah, when it's like, everyone's like, hey, no, just as it a disclaimer. Away. I actually don't know what I'm about yeah. to start talking about. <laughs> but that being said, here's my uninformed opinion. Now I'm no potato farmer, but I don't see why you have to bury those things. <laughs> they grow on trees, right? <laughs> All right, Nick. We have one more story here that I think I guess we're just going to introduce it because it's kind of. Yeah, we should right tease now. this because I have not done nearly the amount of research required. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a bit about uh, uh, the surface of Bill C-51 or what you know about it? Uh, so CSIS, the Canada Security <coughs> Intelligence Service. Secure Intelligence Service? Details. Either one. Um, Thursday and Friday, a bunch of news dropped. Um. The headline of this article is specifically to do with Bill C-51. They are aiming to remove terrorist propaganda from the Internet. And as all our guests and uh, hosts here know, every time a national government has sought to remove something from the Internet, they have been nothing but successful. 
Very true. Yes. Yes. Um, Ceases is always also getting a bunch of other powers to do with like uh, email interception. Uh, interfere. There's a lot to do with interference. So right now, Ceases, the organization can't actually apprehend someone. They don't have the legal legal authority to do that. But they can interfere as much as they want. So if they suspect you're up to no good, they can interfere with your travel plans. Like they can just electronically remove your, I don't know, your travel booking Hmm. or stuff like that. But it sounds like it has a lot to do with electronic surveillance and now electronic interference. And so I thought that you guys would be probably better suited than I am to talk about this. But I think like I tried to get more information on it right after it came out. I think it came out Thursday or Friday Mm -hmm. and I've just been, I've not had the opportunity I wanted to really get into it yet. Right. Yeah. I've only heard about it. I only heard about it Friday afternoon. Yes. I think that's about the size of it. And so I just, there hasn't been time between now and then to, really get into it but i would very much like to hear your guys thoughts on the matter yeah so i think the best thing we can do is encourage people to go and look into what has happened that i mean all the major tech sites mentioned it at least that i saw Mm -hmm. um and like it's 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 really oddly organized on cbc's website anyway because it comes under politics and tech and Canada news, et cetera. It's right. just, it's really odd. But yeah, it, news it, organizations, uh, the, or I guess government organizations, will try to drop news like this on a Friday afternoon because nobody's really paying attention. I mm. missed it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's not even necessarily that they're not paying attention, but people are thinking about their weekend. They're trying to get home from work. There, a, a huge number of stories like this will be dropped on either on holidays or on. Friday mm. afternoon. Yeah, but with the just a massive number of news organizations and number of writers they have available these days, you, it tends to get picked up no matter what. And so this was the case here, but again, like it doesn't mean that everyone saw it and that was their intention to try to kind of slip it in without a lot of people noticing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really want to talk about this with you guys. Yeah. But I just don't think it can happen right now. Yeah. So we'll, we'll say, We'll, we will read up on it. Feel free to read up on it. We'll definitely include a link to the CBC page about it. Hopefully they'll have cleaned up their act a little bit, organizing it, or decided at least what t- category it falls under. Honestly, it kind of... I kind of wish they'd organize the stories more like Google organizes its tabs and emails and stuff, where you could just label a story with several yeah. different yeah. tags, and then it would just show up in the different news tabs, but... yeah. Yeah, so uh, look forward to that next Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I guess that's it for the stories we have this week. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to say before we go? I got I got a lot of flack yes or last week for just abruptly cutting the show. <laughs> I I didn't say that was unappreciated. I just no, you said it was appreciated because you had to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, I think that's right. a good week. In that, yeah. In that case, thank you for joining us for future chat. As uh, as you do, if you're if you're always here, then we are very grateful for you doing that. We'll be back next week with more science and tech talk. In the meantime, you are welcome to drop us a message on Twitter at Future Chats. You can head to futurechat.me to find uh, other stuff we've talked about past episodes. Uh, we would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. We have one five-star review on there. And uh, Ooh. we're looking for more. So if you have a few minutes and you've been enjoying the show, then feel free to leave us a, a good review. If you If you hate the show but watch it, just to hear how much we screw up, then uh, feel free to go leave us a bad review. But I would, I would discourage that if I, if I had any sway in your opinion on doing that. Could they, could they not leave us a five star review in that they are entertained by our ineptitude? If they, if they wanted to leave us a five star review, we would certainly appreciate that. If they want to leave us a one star review, um, don't, don't do that. Why would you do that? <laughs> if it tweet at us or Google plus us or, Facebook us and we'll chat if you have yeah. an issue with something we said or you have ideas for the show. Yeah. Love to hear from we'll you. chat in the future about it. Yeah. yeah, we'll 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 do a future chat about it. <laughs> All right, see you guys next week. See you guys. Bye.